0: Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. So in chapter 20, Paul said farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he boarded a ship, and they sailed away, and now they are headed towards Jerusalem. Verse 2. And having a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Verse 3. When they had come in the sight of Cyprus leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and we landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So now they're back on Israel's soil, basically. They're on the coast, even though Tyre was not a city of Israel. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So the disciples were hearing from the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. And Paul is still determined to go to Jerusalem, knowing that what awaits him there is not good. So why would the Holy Spirit tell Paul that sufferings and imprisonment await him in chapter 20, verse 22, but the same Spirit tells the disciples to tell him not to go to Jerusalem? Well, Paul said in chapter 20 that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit. And another way to translate that word is bound. So Paul is under the direct control of the Holy Spirit. He knows he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. That's evident. God told him. So that's his conviction. And he will stop at nothing to do what the Lord is telling him to do. We know that about Paul. And that's just an amazing example of faith. God told me to do it. I don't care what happens. I'm doing it. The disciples are understanding from the Holy Spirit what's going to happen to Paul, and they evidently don't understand God's calling on Paul's life. So, thinking naturally instead of spiritually, which we all do, they think that Paul, suffering in the manner which he is destined to, is a bad thing. Therefore, Paul should avoid the bad thing if he simply doesn't go. It's just a common sense thing. God's telling us you're going to suffer. We don't want you to suffer, so don't go. And they heard from the Holy Spirit, but they were apparently ignorant that it was God's will that Paul go to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit's just saying, hey, when Paul goes there, he's going to suffer. And they're like, no, man, we don't want Paul to suffer. So when God tells us to go, we go. It's his plan. And Peter, he found this out the hard way when Jesus told his disciples his plan to suffer. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time Jesus began Begin to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I believe that the disciples were doing the same thing. They were hearing from God. They knew the plan, but they weren't setting their minds on the things of God. Hey, it's his plan. He knows things we don't. He sees the future. So the lesson for us is that when God tells you to do something, you do it and you don't worry about it. Even if it's going to be bad, you do it. And in the suffering, when it happens, you say, okay, Lord, there's a reason why I'm suffering. It's not just because you're up there going, yeah, whatever, you're going to suffer. It's because you have a plan happening and... I'm a part of that plan, so give me that peace that I'm at least doing your will. Get my eyes on you, my mind on Christ, instead of my mind on myself. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. So they're saying goodbye to Paul. Verse 6, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. The city of Tyre is on the coast, and walking to Jerusalem from the city of Tyre would have been a long journey. And Paul's probably tired of walking, so they took a ship down the coast. And again, if you have a map, you can see the cities that they stopped in. And incidentally, if you look at the maps, and you look at all these cities, and you get familiar with the cities, and you get online, and you look at pictures of these cities, you can see a lot of the old ruins and things. It's very fascinating, kind of take you back in time. Verse 7, when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So he's hanging out, Paul's making his rounds, checking in with the disciples. Verse 8, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So one of the seven refers back to Acts chapter 6, verse 5, when the apostles chose seven men as deacons. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose "...against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, Look, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So Philip lands in Caesarea in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, we find out. And that's where they are. They're in Caesarea. Verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So his influence as a servant of God was passed on to his children. It's cool to see our kids serving the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So we met Agabus in chapter 11, verse 28, when he prophesied about the worldwide famine that eventually occurred in the time of Claudius. So now he's here. Verse 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So again, people are hearing from the Holy Spirit a consistent message about Paul and his suffering. And that's what we want to see. We want to see consistency. That's huge when you're getting stuff from the Holy Spirit in a group setting. So you're moving forward with a plan to do something, and you say, Hey, I need you guys to pray about some things. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And you lay out what you got for answers. And if the answers are all consistent, yeah, the Lord told me this, and it's consistent between several people that haven't been communicating together, then it's a pretty good chance that that's God's plan that consistency is huge. This consistency, the message was, yeah, Paul's going to go and he's going to be bound and suffer. Now, I've had people tell me, hey man, I got a verse for you. God gave it to me. I'm like, all right, what is it? And they tell me the verse. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea what that means, but let's wait and see. And as expected, it came to nothing. Because we as believers, we got an obligation to the Lord to wait upon him and test every spirit so we don't look stupid and misrepresent God. And that's what people do. And, oh, I feel like God's telling me this about you. Okay, well, have you really prayed about that and confirmed it? Because somebody might have a issue and they're praying about it. And then someone else comes up saying, hey, I got a word from the Lord for you. And it's not from the Lord. And you give them some kind of advice, they take it and it blows up in their face. You know, what just happened there? Well, what happened is he didn't wait on the Lord. He didn't confirm what God was telling you. You're not tuned in with the Holy Spirit. Rather, you're just tuned in with your own imagination. And that's not what we want to be. We don't want to be people like that. When people are getting the same message, it's a good thing. That means they're on track. But Agabus' message was consistent with Paul's instruction from the Holy Spirit, as well as the previous disciples' message. So there shouldn't be any doubt that this is going to happen. And Paul knew it was going to happen, and he just spent a whole lot of time preparing himself. He's on these ships for days. He's hanging out with people. He's praying. Paul's ready for this, and he's going towards Jerusalem. He's not running away. He wasn't the one stressed out. Everyone else was. When they heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So now everyone's on board. Paul, you're not going. And with the best intent, you kind of kicks someone in the gut. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul, I think he finally vents. He's like, look, knock it off. This is what God's telling me to do. I'm going. May the Lord's will be done, even if it means I die. That's a great witness. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Hey, that's good. <laughs> okay, Paul, we get it. We don't like it, but you know what? It's God's call. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. Verse 16, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem and they hang out with an early disciple. And I can't help but wonder if they're taking Paul from house to house, kind of hiding him, keeping him on the down low. This kind of something I'm It doesn't really mean anything, but verse 17. When they had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now they're in Jerusalem. And I can't help but wonder what's going through Paul's mind. On the one hand, he's reunited with the brothers in the Holy City, preparing for the Feast of Pentecost. On the other hand, he knows something's coming, and that's going to be difficult to endure. One of my heroes is Martin Luther King Jr. And the reason being is because when you watch his... Marches that he was on, and you watch his eyes, he knew he was going to die. He knew it. And he's just walking, doing what God had called him to do, walking forward, and he's looking from the right to the left. If you watch him, look at footage, and you watch that expression on his face, he knew he was going to die, but he still did what he was supposed to do. He still endured to the day he died. And I think that is something that's very noble in a person when they know they're going to die and they're doing it anyway. And they could easily just flake out and run away, but they don't. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. Notice there's no apostles here. So there's several men in the Gospels named James. Two of the apostles were named James. The son of Zebedee, the brother of John, and then James, the son of Alphaeus. This appears to be James, the son of Joseph and Mary, Jesus' brother. We know he had brothers and sisters from a couple passages. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. And he was well-respected by the Jews, and it appears that he was one leading the church in Jerusalem. And the other apostles look like they'd been sent out, which is what the word apostle means, the sent ones or ones that are sent out. So they were sent out, they were doing what God had called them to do to spread the gospel all over as Jesus had commanded them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul debriefs James on the things that God is doing all over the world, This had to be exciting for James, because he's in the fire, too. He's in Jerusalem. While Paul was out there spreading the gospel to peoples all over the known world, James didn't have it easy either. So I can't help but wonder if James was going, Man, I'd I'd rather do that than this. You're out there sailing all over the world, traveling, doing this kind of stuff. I'm stuck here. I don't think that happened, but I just got a warped mind that way. Verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Paul, look at all these brothers that are around here, too, man. They love Jesus, they're believers, and they're zealous for the law. They love the law, which is something that a lot of people probably didn't do very well before they came to Christ. A lot of these Jews, now that they knew God, the law just opened up and they're like, man, this is God's law. This is great. I want to obey God. It probably had a good effect on them being Jewish. However, verse 21 and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. James like, Paul, yeah, these guys are squared away. They love God. They love the law, but they believe that you're out there teaching the Jews to forsake all of this stuff. This is the word that they're getting back. And, you know, some of those things were correct. Paul didn't teach to forsake Moses, but he did teach that the law was done and gone for the believer in Christ. Now there's a new covenant that totally overrides the law. And that's what's getting Paul into so much trouble everywhere he goes. He's not anti-law, rather, the law's done. And with it, we've moved on to the bigger, better covenant that was foretold in Scripture. So there's a problem with Paul, not only among the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, but also the believers. They think he's out there teaching heresy, which he was accused of. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Something needs to be done, Paul, because word is going to get out and spread quickly that the infamous teacher against Moses is in town. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you, for we have four men who are under a vow, Verse 24, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So, okay, Paul, you need to show them that you're a true Jew. Let's take this vow and shave your head, pay the money, all that kind of stuff. They're going to look at you and go, yeah, he's taking the vow and know that you observe the law. And they need to see that. Our believing brothers need to see that too. Because even though They were believers in Christ. They were still Jews. And not only were they Jews, they were likely thinking of themselves as like the super Jews. So we are the Jews that embrace the real Messiah. We are the ones that have the power of the Holy Spirit. So to them, in their minds, they got it all. Now Paul's out there messing everything up. Verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who believe, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so in chapter 15, they hash this out about the requirements for the Gentiles. If you're going to be a believer and you're a Gentile, you don't have to become Jewish and you don't have to observe anything Jewish. You don't need any Old Testament rules to govern your life. You need Jesus. They can trust in Jesus without trying to act like Jews. Verse 26. Then Paul took them in the next day. He purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So, Paul, he does what they're supposed to do. He participates in the practice, and now he goes into the temple. So, let's build some context to verse 27. Paul had been in Jerusalem at least a week, and word had likely spread that he was among the crowd. So, let's go back to the law and talk about what is happening in Jerusalem while Paul is there. Exodus chapter 23, verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, number one. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, number two, of the first fruits. It's also called the feast of first fruits. It's the same thing. Of your labor, of what you have sown in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering, number three, or Pentecost, which is 50 days after the feast of unleavened bread. And that 50 days, that's what Pentecost refers to there that word. The Feast of Ingathering is also called the Feast of Pentecost, or just Pentecost. That's the problem a lot of times studying these feasts. There's different names for them. Over the centuries, the names have been tweaked a little bit. At the end of the year, when you gather in from the field of the fruit of your labor, so that's the Feast of Pentecost, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So three times a year, Jews from all over the world, devout Jews, would return to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Historians suggest that in the city there would be over a million people. That's a lot of people crowded into the city and the temple area because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to the temple. Also at this time, Jerusalem and all Judea was under the leadership of the Roman Empire, and the Romans and the Jews hated each other. Rome's answer for rebellion was swift, brutal force upon anyone deemed a problem. So the feasts were very likely a time of high alert for the Romans and the Jews knew this. The Romans probably had a whole lot of reinforcements brought in, so they were ready for a big problem. You got a million Jews in one place at one time, you know, and something erupts. Then, yeah. So, as this sect leader, which they called Paul, he was leader of the sect of the Nazarene. They called him. He comes to town on a feast day. He is hated by unbelieving Jews as well as the believers who were zealous for the Jewish law and traditions. And when Paul would be spotted. A huge eruption would likely occur, which would get the attention of the Romans real quick. And what would the Romans' response be? Likely violence. What would violence in the midst of a million devout Jewish men create? Civil unrest, and that would be a big problem. So tensions are high this year at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, looking at a map and finding the area of the ancient Middle East called Asia Minor, or simply Asia, not the Asia that we're familiar with today, we find several cities that Paul had visited. And he caused problems in, specifically with the Jews. The problem between Paul and the unbelieving Jews was Paul had the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit on his side. And he proved to them his point and convinced a lot of the Jews as well as a lot of the Gentiles to believe in Jesus, which they did. And now that Paul had left these cities, the small gathering of believers were growing, and the Jews among them were still believing. And think about the long-term effect of a Jewish person or family who, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to do things supernaturally as God commands them to do so. Just think about that. The gifts of the Holy Spirit being exercised in these towns. They're getting it. The Holy Spirit's moving. They're praying for people. They're getting healed. They're prophesying. Things are happening. The unbelieving Jews are going to look bad because it's their God that these people are worshiping. So just because Paul leaves the region doesn't mean things go back to normal. And the Jews, who are just trying to survive in the Gentile land, are being made to look stupid as the followers of Jesus become the new spiritual power in the area. And what's the result? More hatred for Paul. In Jesus. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. They found him and they attacked him. Verse 28. Crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So they raise their war cry, and they falsely accuse him of bringing Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. Verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Trophimus was from Ephesus. Some of the residents of Ephesus recognized him as a Gentile from their own city, and they were very familiar with Paul because Paul was there for a couple of years, and they assumed Paul brought him into the temple, which he didn't. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So, the drama begins, and the temple goes into lockdown. Verse 31, And when they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the leader of the Roman guards, that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and now the Romans get word. And imagine that there's a million Jews and they're having a huge problem. Verse 32. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul. So the Romans arrived and they stopped beating Paul. And this likely took several minutes of which Paul had to endure yet another beat down. And when they see the Romans they simmer down a bit, but just a bit. Verse 33. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. So They slap the cuffs on Paul, thinking he's an insurrectionist or something, and then they interview him. Verse 34, Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So, full-blown drama, let's take him away and interview him. Verse 35, And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. He was in the hands of the Romans, and they helped him up the stairs to get him out of the crowd. Verse 36, for the mob of the people follow, crying out, away with him. Now the Romans, to see this kind of uproar during a feast, they knew it had to be something serious. Everyone's running around with their hair on fire. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you speak Greek? So the tribune is surprised that Paul speaks Greek so well. And you know, Paul was very fluent Greek and Hebrew and probably other languages. Verse 38, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So the Tribune believes that they've arrested a man that caused a lot of grief for the Jews. And you can check out some commentaries and read about this Egyptian magician who came down to Jerusalem and caused a whole lot of drama claiming that he was a prophet. There's information on him that you can read about. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul quickly identifies himself as a Jew from Cilicia, which is an important city. And by implication, he may be throwing out the Roman citizen card. Look, I'm a Roman citizen. Thinking back to Acts chapter 16, when they beat him and did everything because they didn't know he's a Roman citizen. But Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. I'm not an Egyptian. And I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia. You know the city. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and that's where we stop. That's the end of chapter 21. So Paul gets his opportunity to share Jesus with this angry mob. He's in Jerusalem, where God told him to be, His suffering has begun. As he's standing there on the steps, he's probably dripping with blood. His face is probably swelled up from being punched so many times and kicked. And yet he says, I'm still going to do what God called me to do. Paul was an amazing man. But he was an amazing man because he serves an amazing God. And we serve that amazing God too. And God, through the Holy Spirit, will do a lot of amazing things through anyone who is like Paul willing to go the distance, willing to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Thank you.